66. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one around you. Uh, look in the index, turn to Psalms, find Psalm 66. And uh, I love this passage. I love this passage. And I hope you have a Bible this morning. I hope you're taking notes. I hope you're writing things down. I always encourage to, to bring a paper Bible. And here's why. Uh, because if you're sitting there scrolling, there's no way you're ever going to find that again. But if you, if you have a paper Bible and you write it down and you, you're, you're actually turning real pages, you're going to be able to come back here and, and you're going to be able to reference this passage and be reminded of what this passage speaks about. And so be, be old school, all right? If you want to be unique and, and you're looking for a creative outlet, carry a Bible, all right? That's, that's a good way to do it. Uh, so Psalm 66, if you don't have one, take one. Psalm 66 this morning. And we come to a psalm of praise. And the, the overarching theme we see in this psalm this morning is God's goodness saturates our lives. God's goodness saturates our lives. And I, I want to show you where I see this in the text. We, we use this word saturate a lot. And you're like, oh, Justin, he's just trying to put that word in there again because that's our vision statement. You know, just want to see the Salt Lake Valley saturated with the good news of Jesus. And uh, any, anywhere he can get it in there, you know, he's, he's going to get it in there. And I, I want to take you to the end of verse 12, okay? It says at the very end of verse 12, you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Here's what that word means. It's the same exact word, the abundance there, is the same exact word that is used in Psalm 23, where it talks about, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. And it says, my cup overflows. What this picture is, is he leads us to an, a place of overflowing abundance of wealth, of goodness. Our lives are completely saturated with the, the goodness of God. And, th and this is where this text leads us. Now, if, if you're hearing that this morning, um, particularly as, as you walk in the doors, I recognize that there are probably some who go, it's not true for me. Not true for me. You don't know what I faced this week. You don't know what I'm experiencing. You don't know the suffering. You don't know the pain that I'm walking through. And I, I want you to hear this morning that our psalmist is not just like this Enneagram 7 who just thinks everything like optimist and, and just everything is a positive and just life of the party and, and God's goodness is just overflowing and abundant and we should just celebrate and relish in it. No, this is a person who's experienced deep pain and suffering and anguish and we're going to get to that in that text because he actually gives God praise for it, for what it's producing and for where it's leading him. And so it's, it's about having perspective in the midst of that pain of going, how even in the midst of that, how in the midst of, of suffering and deep anguish is, is God entering in and speaking and engaging and bringing me to a place of abundance? Here's my hope is every single Sunday morning, I, I, I hope, and this is my prayer, and this is where I'd love for us to get to, and we talk a lot about it. If we're going to be a church that sees the Salt Lake Valley saturated with the good news of Jesus, our lives have to be saturated with the goodness of Jesus. 
And it doesn't necessarily mean we're like this happy pie in the sky, overjoyous, just like nothing can go wrong on earth. That's not what it means. And that's not what the text here describes. But for our lives to be saturated, when we walk in Sunday morning, we're not walking in this place expecting to have our cup filled up. Our cup is already overflowing and we're coming and we're bringing and we're sharing and we're shouting the good deeds and praises of God. We're coming in and we're overjoyed for the goodness of God that has been poured out in our lives already. If you're looking to this place, Sunday morning, Sunday gathering, this hour as that place to come and get your cup filled, I'm I'm telling you this morning, you are going to live a thirsty life because there's no way that this can last you all week. We have to learn and we have to equip. Now, this isn't me like harping on you or coming down on you. My thing is, is going, we have to equip you to get to that place. We have to help you see where the goodness of God comes from and how our lives can be saturated by it so that we can go out and see the Salt Lake Valley saturated and see it overflow into our neighbors, see it overflow into our communities, see it overflow into our families, see it overflow into our coworkers. If we truly have, if he's led us to a place of abundance, there's going to be enough to go around. There's going to be enough to share. And so what we have in this text is an invitation to acknowledge God's goodness, that God's goodness is overflowing in our lives, and in return, we give God praise by saturating others with his goodness, and that's what this psalm is all about. Now, to kick back uh, in in how you're walking in this morning, if if I was a a betting person, okay, and, and I were to say on a scale of one to ten, if, if we were to, to walk in and go, uh, how are we walking in this morning in terms of are we experiencing like God's goodness is overflowing in my life? And, and from one side of the scale being a one where I'm in drought, I'm in a, I'm in a season of despair, I have, I have very little to give thanks for this morning, to 10 being God's goodness is overwhelming me, I'm experiencing his love, his care, his provision, his purifying, sanctifying work in my life. I'm shouting from the hilltops, from the mountaintops, how awesome is God? Like that's a 10, okay? Uh, I, I would guess and I would bet that if I were to kind of put us on a scale this morning, and I would say maybe we're around a four. That's, that's kind of where I'd, I'd put us. And, and my hope is, is that we would see the truth out of this text and that it would move us closer to the 10. And, and, and what I see in this text is three areas where we see God's goodness saturating our lives. And then he gives us two ways to respond pretty simple message, and then we're going to shout from the hilltops, okay? Here we go. First thing, first thing, right out of the gates, we'll look at section one through four here. Shout for joy to God. It's not just shouting for shout's sake, all right? We're shouting to God. God is the, the, the person we're aiming to praise, Our praise is towards him. He's calling all the earth to praise him, to sing the glory of his name. We talk a lot about this word glory. Um, One of the the reasons why we have a vision of, of gospel saturation, the good news of Jesus saturating the Salt Lake Valley, 
comes out of Habakkuk 2.14. In Habakkuk 2.14, it says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How, how much do the waters cover the sea? Completely, right? The waters cover the sea completely. The, the sea is completely saturated with water. And it's saying that we want the knowledge, we want people to know the glory of the Lord. The glory is the weightiness, the significance, the, the awe-inspiring power of God that we stand back and we take like the word awesome that's used here. Like we use awesome in a lot of ways. Like that was an awesome movie uh, re- referring to Top Gun, right? Because like that's the only awesome movie that's come out in, you know, recent months, right? Anybody with me? Come on. You, you got to shout for praise, all right? Shout for praise to Top Gun, okay? Everybody, I, I know I talk to you and you're like, oh, that was such a good movie. You're just afraid to show it right now, all right? And Tom Cruise, like, he's a handsome fella in his late age, all right? It's an awesome movie. That was an awesome burrito I ate yesterday, right? That was a awesome, we use the word awesome so often, but to really take back and take stock of who God is and to, to know him in all of his strength, all of his power, all of his might, all of his goodness, all of his kindness, all of his love, nothing compares. He's awesome. He's awesome. And that word has, has lost some of its significance and meaning, but here in the text, it says, say to God, Like, literally, he gives us very easy. Like, if we're not intuitive people, it's just saying, say to God, how awesome is your deeds? If you want a very practical application, just go, hey, God, your deeds are awesome. They're awesome. How awesome are your deeds? How awesome are the things that you do? How awesome are your works? How awesome is your strength? How awesome is your power? How awesome is it that you care? How awesome is it that you hear me? How awesome is it that you forgive me? How awesome is it that you gave us Jesus? How awesome is it? And we can go on and on and on and on. Thankfulness of how awesome our God is. So great is your power that enemies come cringing to you. His glory, in many ways, causes some of us to praise, but causes others to fear. That's kind of the justice and mercy side of God. There's two sides to this coin. For him to be a God of mercy also means for him to be a God of justice, a God of wrath. And so in the sense of when we look back and we stand, and obviously we as his children, like we see him as a God, as a father who is loving, protector, provider. We, we see him in this light, and, but others who see him in that strength are, are moved to fear. All the earth worships you. All sing praises to you. They sing praises to your name. How awesome are your deeds. When's the last time you paused outside of Thanksgiving to take stock in all that God has done? When's the last time that we, we, we paused and, and yeah, there's a time for reverence and there's a time for quiet, but this is a time of, of shouting. What is it that causes you, that, that would move you to a place to shout, God is awesome, to be a little bit undignified, to be a little bit 
uncomfortable, to, to move to a place that it actually, the awesome deeds of God move us to a place where we kind of get out of our comfort zone and we're like, he's awesome. Like he, we're, we're wanting to tell our body and our face that he's awesome. And, and it's reflective of how we think he's awesome. Let me ask you this morning, what are you regarding as awesome? What are you looking to? What has captivated your attention, your time? He's awesome. His deeds are awesome. And this is the first reason he gives us that we should be moved to praise. The second thing is, and, and I, I'll just keep on this awesome. I put the notes in like, how awesome are God's deeds? But I just put God's deeds. How awesome is God's deliverance? That's, that's what this next section talks about is, is God's deliverance, that God delivers us. How awesome is it? It says, come and see. And I love this because we're invited in this text, we're invited to come and see the work that God has done. A lot of times, like, we, we live in a culture, uh, in, a, in a church culture, where a lot of times, like, we, we, have, we have failed to see uh, the, the need for an attractional church. A lot of us, we hear about attraction church and we're like, oh man, we're, we're opposed to attraction church. I hope it's attractional, all right? Jesus, God, he's not anti-attractional. We're invited here to come and see. I would hope that what is happening in our gathering, in our worship, in our community groups, in our lives, that it is something that we could invite others into that they would go, wow, God is up to something. God is at work. I hope that when we sing worship on Sunday morning, when we pray, when we gather, when we come together, that it is an opportunity for us to come and see, that we could invite, we could have an invitational nature to tell people, hey, come and see what God's doing. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds towards the children of man. And then he takes us back. What is a way that he's been awesome? He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him, who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. I love that verse. Like, in case you think that everything that's happening in the world is just outside, like it's just unruly and just circumstances and everything, God's eyes are upon them. God's eyes are upon the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. It's a warning. We see in this text that he's delivered them. He delivered the people. We, this story is taken from Exodus chapter 15. If you don't know the story, the Israelites were, were enslaved by the Egyptians. And God came and through Moses, they, they, they were freed and they're on the run. They're, they're freed from slavery and they're, they're on the run and they come to a river and they're like, what in the world do we do? They reach a dead end and God tells them, you only need to be still. And what's he do? He, he parts the water and they walk through on dry land. It's amazing. And this is one of the things of just like looking back and if you're just having a hard time this morning relating of going like, that's great, like God saved them from that, that really hard, you know, situation, uh, but what has he done for me? 
And I would, I would tell you that our situation, how is a man made right with God? How is a sinful man made right with God is even a more impossible situation than the crossing of the Red Sea. That you and I, in our sin, we're separated from God. God, our Father, is holy. And in His holiness, we are separated. We are sinful human beings. Our sinfulness separates us. But God loves you. God is so in love. He's delighted in you that he would take what is impossible. How can man be reconciled with God? Nothing of man. But God steps in. God sends his son Jesus. And God delivers us from the wrath that we would have received in our sin. And he gives us and he credits our account as righteousness. He credits us with like the blood of Jesus covers our sins and we're made right with God. He has delivered us and he has brought us into safe territory. He has brought us into the kingdom of God. He has brought us to a place of abundance. He has delivered us. And so we look back and we're like, man, if I got salvation, I got everything. Like how many of us look back and go like, man, if he would just get me through this dry land, if he would just get me through, he's done more than that. He, he's possible, he's capable of, of doing far more things than that. He's a deliverer. How awesome is his deliverance? How awesome is his deliverance? But then we get into this, this really difficult passage. And I think this is the passage that may speak to most of us in this room because we walk in this morning and we're like, I, you know, like the Christian life is, is one of just overwhelming abundance and everything's right with the Lord and I'm just supposed to come in and put on a happy face and everything should be good. And, and the psalmist is, is not naive to think that that's where you're coming in. And so what does he say? Bless our God, O peoples, verse 8. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Listen to this. Who has kept our soul? God has kept your soul. He's kept your soul. He is, he is the watchkeeper of your soul. And he has not let our feet slip. In what circumstances? For you, O oh God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing, crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads who went through fire and water, yet you brought us out to a place of abundance. Who does he say is responsible for all these ter terrible circumstances? Who? God is. Now, I know that maybe you grew up in a church that was like, hey, we don't want to put that on God. Here's what I would tell you. God can take care of himself. God did. You're, you're like, the, the situation, the hardship I'm facing, like, here's the thing. Is it easier to say this morning that what's happening to me is totally outside of God's hand, outside of God's control, and it's just happened to me by circumstance? Or is it better to know that the God who has watch over your soul, who is keeping you, who is keeping watch over the nations, who will not let your feet slip, he is the one who is bringing challenge, difficulty, trial, suffering into your life to produce something in you and to lead you to a place of abundance. And I get it. Some of you are smirking at me and kind of looking at me and like, hey, don't put that on God. Here's the thing. It's God who causes it. And he's doing it because there's something greater than the problem that you're facing that he wants to produce in you. There's something greater than your comfort that he's out to pursue. And this is the very reason why this, this psalmist 
is, is writing to a place of going like, I can give praise in the midst of suffering because I have perspective now in knowing that God is leading me to a place of abundance. God is refining me like silver. First Peter talks about it. First Peter 1, 5 through 6 talks about it, that he's going to give us testings and trials, that, that all of these things, God is purifying and sanctifying us. Why? So as silver, it would be made pure. And I get that that's kind of putting God on the hook. And, and maybe that, that moves some of us to a place where we're like, dude, that kind of makes me angry at God. Like, it's easy to give God good, like, to give God praise and give God goodness, like, and say that God's goodness has saturated my life when it comes to, like, job promotions, when it comes to, like, I went to the mailbox and I was on my last dollar and there was a $50 check in there and it's like, oh, God's goodness, God's grace. That's what I'm talking about when you pull up to Smith's and you're like, there's a parking spot right there in the front, God's goodness, right? God's grace, this is so good. But then when suffering comes, like, immediately we want to turn the corner and say, like, oh, God's not in this. And I want you to say here that it's actually more comforting to know that God is over it, that he's keeping watch over your soul, and he's going to apply the fire just enough to not let your feet slip. Here's what's interesting about silver. I, uh, I read a commentator who kind of gave some description on like the refining of silver. And one is, it's not like you apply the heat and you just throw some silver. And, and what you're doing with any precious metal is there's impurities in the metal. And those impurities need to be refined. Those impurities need to come out. And so th- those things are burned off. The dross, like we, we, we're, we're to be purified. The heat comes, the trials come, the suffering comes. And what that does is that purifies. It allows us to be more purified, more sanctified. And it's not something that's just done and left unattended. Like the refining process requires undivided attention from the refiner. He's watching the process from the start to the finish. It's an intricately designed process. The, the, the process is designed to do exactly like what it's supposed to do. It's a specifically designed process. Heat is carefully regulated. Too much heat, too little heat. It doesn't, like it, it's, it's given at, a, at an exact perfect temperature. And it's repeated multiple times. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. I said 5 through 6. In this salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may result in what? Like, why is it? What does he say in 1 Peter? He says, why is it that we go through these trials? Why is it that we go through these sufferings? Why is it? And he says, Here, here's the answer. So that it may found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who's the praise, glory, and honor for? You. So that when we appear before Jesus, we're the purified, we're the perfect bride of Christ coming, that we've been purified, that we've been completely made right, glorified, that we're there and, and we receive praise and glory and honor. And that's what those testings do. That's what that suffering does. It leads to abundance of praise and glory and honor. How often, how often do you and I think 
that God's power can only be displayed in a trouble-free, problem-free, painless-free life of abundant goodness. Like that's the only place that God's power can, can, can be seen. And I, I want to encourage you in this because, like I said, I think it's easy for us to look at the, the job promotion, the parking spot, the, the random check in the mail, the financial blessing, and we give God praise in that time. And we fail to see his hand at work in other times. Our, those who are part of the Ecclesia family received this message yesterday uh, to pray for a family. It's a friend of someone here in our church. And it's a family who lost their one-and-a-half-year-old baby boy to a pool accident this past weekend. This is after losing two of their children in a fatal car accident last year. And the father wrote this, Hearts are broken. Our youngest boy, one-and-a-half years old, passed away yesterday afternoon in a pool accident. We're devastated. Losing another child in this life on this side of heaven is beyond imaginable. We're still raw from the trauma of our other losses. And we want to feel like we've checked the suffering box off in our lives and just say, hey, the really bad stuff is behind us. We so often want to cling on to the desires and passions of this life and make ourselves the center of our own best life movie, according to us, written by us, starring us, the audience of one, us. But this is deception. It was never about us. God created this world. We messed it up with our own sin. He became the rescue plan and saving sacrifice for that sin. And we now have a response. Nixon, their son, was created by God and given to us for a very short time. We loved him. God help us. We loved him. He's given to us at a time needed, a gift from heaven. Now the same Lord has called this sweet boy home earlier than we would like. Remember, though, this was never my life to give or keep. It was all about the God who gave it. And I look in this moment and I read this, one, as an example to pray for this family, but also as a picture of someone who's experiencing deep suffering in life. I can't imagine. But in the midst of it, is still able to look to a God who gives and a God who takes away and still praise be to God. I get that it puts God on the hook. God is capable of being on the hook. God is capable of figuring out how to navigate that mess. But the things that we've experienced in life, the net the crushing burden on our backs. We let men ride over our heads. Abundance is on the other side of it. Know that when we're experiencing this, as one commentator said, the biblical habit of seeing the hand of God in all events makes suffering as meaningful as the deliverance. I don't see it like that often. Right? Like, do we look at suffering as meaningful as the deliverance? That God would count us worthy, that God would see us, that he's at work, that he's purifying us, that he, he sees us as someone he's wanting to make fit as the bride of Christ, 
that, that He is purifying you? This is His deliverance. He's leading you to a place of deliverance. He has delivered you. He is delivering you. And one day we'll be fully delivered from this mess. The third thing is this. How awesome is God's devotion? How awesome is God's devotion? I love, we we see it all throughout the text, but I'm going to focus in on 19 through 20 here in a bit. But I want you to go back up and just his devotion to us. He's devoted. He's, he's keeping watch on the nations. We, we see his devotion here, and he, he's kept your soul. He has not let your feet slip. But at the very end, verse 19 through 20, he says, He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer, removed his steadfast love from me. Can I ask you this morning? I know we, we maybe grew up singing a song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But do you really believe this morning? Do you believe that God loves you? Do you believe that he delights in you? Do you believe that if you were to walk and you see Jesus upon the throne, that it's one, what do you see upon his face? Is it a scowl? Is it a frown? Is it one of disgust? Or is it one of of joy? Is it one of gladness? Is it one who delights in you, who sees you, who has not removed his steadfast love from you? He hasn't done that. Even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of pain, he has not removed his steadfast love from you. He loves you. And I know that you and I, like, we're not perfect, and we sin, and we think that in our sin that he's disgusted with us, and, and, and we feel like if we were to walk in the room, if we were to stand before Jesus, that Jesus would look upon us, and, and he would be disgusted in our, in our sin. But Romans 5.8 says that he demonstrates his love for you, that while you were yet sinners, he died for you. While you were in the midst of doing the very thing that God hated, he loved you. You cannot do anything to cause God to love you more or less. God loves you. His steadfast love for you remains. He is devoted to you. The Lord takes pleasure in you. And you know why he tells us that? Is so that we would take pleasure in him. Because if we believe that God is disgusted with us, we refrain to come from him. But he delights in your presence. He delights in you. He wants you to come to him. We're not just performing for him. We're going to get into this vow aspect here. It's, it's not like we're, we can't game God like we're trying to perform in a certain way that is going to manipulate him and, and him like, oh, they must be really good people. He's like, no, they're actually really bad people and I love them. And I died for them and I sent my son to die for them. I love them. He delights in you. He's smiling over you. Everything we do stems from this delight and love. Everything. And there's two ways that we're called in this text to respond. And the way I've described it is demonstration and proclamation. What do we do? God, how awesome are his deeds? How awesome is his deliverance? How awesome is his devotion? What do we respond? By demonstrating and proclaiming, all right? It, if you look in verse 13, the, it changes to first person. Everything 
before this was all corporate. Everything was corporate. All the earth, all the earth, we will worship. Here, he's like, I. And that's where I would, I, I would have you focus in. Like, how will you respond? Make it personal. How will you respond in light of God's, how awesome is God's goodness to us through his deeds, through his deliverance, through his devotion to us? How will you respond? And, and what we see here is he demonstrates his, his praise to God through the keeping of vows. Now, anytime we use the word vows, we think of marriage, like marriage vows. That's where we, we talk about vows. Vows were actually, like we look in the Old Testament and vows are riddled throughout the Old Testament. Vows were made. There was a covenant that was made. You would come and you're, you're holding to your promise. And as Wes articulated last week, it's, it's not a bribe. And because I think we read the text and it says, I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. And we all know the prayer that we throw up, like, God, if you get me out of this, I'll be faithful and attend church every single Sunday, right? God, if you get me out of this, then I will give all my money to the poor and live a life of poverty. Like we've all like thrown those prayers up to God. This is not a bribe to get God to act. This is a picture of God being faithful. And because of God's faithfulness, he's saying, God, I know you're faithful. In my time of trouble, I know that you're leading me to a place of abundance. And I know that you'll lead me out of this. And when you lead me out of this, I will continue to keep my covenant towards you. And a covenant and a vow, a covenant is, I will be who I'm supposed to be, whether you're being who you should be or not. God's covenant love is perfect towards us. Meaning, God never changes based on what we do. God doesn't look at us and, and go, you know, like, as long as Wes is doing what Wes is supposed to do, then I'll be faithful to Wes and keep my love towards Wes. The, the message of God's word in the Bible is, I will keep my covenant with Wes, whether or not Wes is being who she, he should be or not. This is the picture of what marriage is meant to be. Like my wife and I, we get married and we go, hey, Amber, Justin, Justin, I'm going to be faithful to my vows, whether you're being faithful to your vows or not. That's what I'm committing to. And Amber, you are going to be faithful to your vows, whether, whether Justin's being faithful to, this is the picture of covenant. We are promising to stay committed to these. And what this picture is, is he knows God to be faithful. He knows that God will hold his end of the deal, that God will be faithful to hold up his end of the covenant. And this is him going, I, I'm, I'm going to perform my vow. I'm going to hold up my end of the covenant. And what does he do? He says, I'm going to bring an offering to you. And Mindy, like she mentioned in her prayer, like we no longer have to bring sacrifices. What's the sacrifice? The sacrifice is us. We give him our life. We lay down our life for Jesus. We give Jesus our life. But this is an overwhelming abundance of offering here. Like he's saturating the altar. I use the word again with, with an offering here. Like Fattened animals, the sacrifice of rams, bulls, and goats. He's like, man, I'm going to give it all to you. And you know what he's saying here in this text? It's just like, I'm giving you my whole life. Because you're awesome in your deeds, because you're awesome in your devotion, because you're awesome in your deliverance, I'm giving you everything. I'm all in. I'm giving it to you all. He demonstrates that by giving everything. And he's called us to do that. But second, not only are we demonstrating, we're proclaiming. We're proclaiming. 
We're invited in this text to come and hear. Come and hear, verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he's done for my soul. Let me throw out a word to you that like causes some of us to cringe. Evangelism. You know what evangelism is? Evangelism is just telling people, come in here and let me tell you what God's done for me. Like he's the hero of the story. Like in every area of life, we're just saying, let me tell you what God's done. I I woke up this morning. My daughter's in Texas right now, but she said, hey, dad, I got a card for you. And it says, best dad ever, okay? And I opened this up this morning and I was reading and reflecting on this text. And one, I'm thankful that she thinks I'm the best dad ever. But here's the thing. We get to just go and proclaim we have the best dad ever. Like it's Father's Day. And the one who is actually the perfect father, because all of us are imperfect fathers and all of us are sinful and we all fail our kids, all right? If you're like, hey, I'm a perfect parent, like we should talk because um, I would love to learn from you, right? Like we all fail at that. There's one perfect father, God the Father, and he's the best dad ever. And literally, if we, we were like to sum up, what is this text talking about? Like we should all be making cards for God the Father, best dad ever, all right? Like it would do our hearts some good to pull out some watercolors and start painting, right? Best dad ever. He is the best dad ever. And if, if we really have the best dad ever, why would we not want to share that with the world? Why would we not want to tell people, come in here, come in here, come in here. Let me tell you what God, he gave me a parking spot at Smith's the other day. Can you believe that? Come in here. Like, man, I, I had some friends over the other night. And it was just so encouraging. And like, God gifted me those friends, everything. You've heard me share the story. Like I had a friend that in every aspect of life, he never took credit for anything. He was never the hero. He always gave God, like he always pointed, it's like God's, God's grace, God's grace, God's grace, God's gift. He's the hero. I mean, we're playing like four square and he like spiked it. And he's like, God's grace, man. You know, and I'm like, really? Like in four square? You know, and so it's just like every aspect of life, do we... Look at everything we have. There's every perfect gift comes from the Father above. He's the best dad ever. He's the best dad ever. So tell the world. Invite people to come and hear. Invite people to, to come and hear. And it, he goes on in this text and said, if I, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart. Now what verse 18 doesn't mean, if I had, if I had sinned, the Lord would not have listened. Okay? Because again, I talked about that whole picture of covenant. And if you read over in 65.3 that Wes talked about, when iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. So that what, what verse 18 is not about, like if I sin, God won't hear me. Some of us have that viewpoint. If, oh man, I sinned, God's not gonna hear my prayer. Like God's not gonna hear me. He's saying if you get, I love the message version. It says, if I get cozy with sin, if I cuddle up with sin, if I'm, if I'm looking for ways to perform evil, if I'm looking for ways to live and make practice of my sinfulness, those are the prayers that God doesn't hear. But for those of us who come, and because of Jesus, we come and we repent of our sin and turn from our sin. He hears our prayers. He cares for you. He's keeping your soul. He's watching over the nations. He's devoted to you. He loves you. He's the best dad ever. This is such good news. And you're like, what? 
again, like, man, you don't know what kind of week I experienced. I'm like, I, we talked about that. Like, in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of the pain, God is, is working. God is at work. If you are experiencing something in your life that you're like, man, this is, I feel like the fire's turned up a little bit. God is at work. That means he's present. That means he's doing something. I couldn't help but read this text in verse 10 and jump back up and not see, because Christ is in the Psalms. And I couldn't help but read verse 10 through 12 and 12 in light of this is what Jesus experienced for us to lead us to a place of abundance. It says, for you, O God, you've, you've tested Jesus. You, you tried him as, as silver is tried. You brought him into the net. I think of Jesus there in the garden coming. They're coming to arrest him. You brought him into the net. You laid a crushing burden on his back. You let men ride over his head. He went through fire and through water, yet you brought him out to a place of abundance. We see this in the life of Jesus. And Jesus would experience that. Jesus would take on, on himself. It wasn't put upon him. He willingly accepted it. He put upon, he took the, the, the cross. He put it upon his back. He made the journey to Calvary. He took the nails in his hands and he did it because he wanted to lead us to a place of abundance. And sometimes in this life, we don't experience abundance on this side of heaven. But he's promised you that he's leading you to a place of abundance, overflowing goodness. And it's not just a future hope, it's a hope that we can have right here today. You know why he did it? He loves you. Your child, and he's the best dad ever. Let's pray. I'll invite the worship team to come back up. Lord, we, we just pause and want to take a moment just to rest in the fact that, God, you have been good to us. There's much to be thankful for. There's much to delight in. There's much uh, that we should desire and long to proclaim. The only reason we love is because you first loved us. So Lord, we thank you that you're at work in our lives. Lord, none of us wish to be tried. None of us wish to experience suffering. But in the midst of it, May we see your hand at work. May we know that you're present. May we know that you're near. May, may we know that you haven't abandoned us. May we know that you're keeping watch over our soul. And Lord, may we be moved to a place of praise and adoration for what Jesus has done, that he was willing to experience suffering on our behalf to lead us to a place of abundance. Lord, your goodness is truly overflowing. I pray that we would be able to see it in our lives, that we would know your hand at work. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.